Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. 60 years ago, late in the winter of 1963, a small group of British libertarian socialists set out to catalyze public awareness of the very real prospect of nuclear war. They were members of the Committee of 100, the radical wing of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, and their mounting frustration with the apparent futility of conventional protest tactics like marches had already led to a manifesto titled Beyond Counting Asses, calling for civil disobedience and direct action to expose the secrets of the nuclear state. Soon, they managed to do just that. Over two freezing afternoons in February, they traveled to the village of Warren Row in Berkshire, where they located, infiltrated, and documented the contents of regional seat of Government 6, one of a chain of secret bunkers intended to govern the country in the event of nuclear war. A few weeks later, in April, they publicized their findings in an anonymous pamphlet, Danger Official Secrets. It exposed the haphazard nature of government planning for nuclear conflict, the stark fact that such conflict was not survivable, and the cavalier fashion in which the state seemed prepared to consign the bulk of the population to oblivion. 3,000 copies of the pamphlet were sent out discreetly in advance of the Easter weekend to coincide with the annual Aldermaston Peace March. On Saturday, 13th of April, several hundred protesters broke away from the march to surround the site of RSG-6, feeding the flames of what had already become a firestorm of incendiary headlines. That small group of activists called themselves the Spies for Peace. At the time, fearing lengthy jail sentences, they did not identify themselves and none were ever arrested or prosecuted. Eventually, a few of the group did emerge publicly. Nicholas Walter, Ruth Walter, Ken Weller, and Mike Lesser, all of whom have now died. Now, on the 60th anniversary of these events, one more spy for peace has come forward. Nick Ralph grew up in North London, joined the Socialist Labour League as a teenager, and eventually moved into the Committee of 100 and the Libertarian Socialist Group Solidarity. My history workshop colleague, Andrew Whitehead, is working on 1960s radicalism, and a couple of years ago got in touch with Nick to tap into his memories and insights, conversations that led to this podcast. To commemorate the 60th anniversary of the raid on the bunker and the publication of Danger Official Secrets, Andrew and I sat down with Nick over Zoom to explore the events of that momentous winter. We were joined by oral historian Sam Carroll, whose interviews with several anonymized spies for peace formed the heart of a revelatory article published in History Workshop Journal in 2010, and who Nick suggested could both provide an historian's perspective and represent the voices who could not be there. I began by asking Andrew about his interest in tracking the spy's story and what had led him to Nick to begin with. Well, I've been working on uh, the oral history of the British New Left and the Spies for Peace and the revelation, the encircling and the revelation of the location of 
regional seat of government six uh, in Berkshire was one of the key moments of uh, the radical movement in Britain, the early 1960s. And I'd also read uh, Sam Carroll's article in History Workshop Journal. I've got a copy of it uh, in front of me as I speak. Um, so I was intrigued. I'd, I'd met and talked to uh, people who were involved in the libertarian socialist group Solidarity and who were on the fringes of the Spies for Peace. And step by step, they put me in touch with Nick. And we had a couple of long conversations uh, a year or more ago. And, and that and the fact that there's an anniversary coming up lodged in my brain. So I'm delighted that Nick's joining us from Sheffield for this podcast. Welcome, Nick. And uh, I suppose I'd really quite like to start by asking you why, 60 years after the event, are you, for the first time, publicly acknowledging that you were one of the spies for peace? And why have you kept it quiet for so long? <laughs> um, I think we... We decided as a group that it would be something, well, at the time, it felt quite dangerous to, to reveal ourselves. And so no one was going to reveal themselves in the immediate period after we after we did it. Um, so in that sense, we start from a position where everyone was saying, we keep this a secret. This way we don't get the, the, the penalties which had affected other people. I mean, pe people have been sent to prison for these sort of activities. It has happened, and uh, we di we didn't want to be among them. We weren't uh, we weren't people who were going to just sacrifice themselves on, on this particular altar. But on the other hand, about thirty years afterwards, in fact, we decided we had we had a we had a, a meeting with um, together a reunion after thirty years back in ninety three, I guess. And um, at that time, we did talk about the possibility of doing something. It came to nothing. Several members of the group had no intention ever of revealing that they were a part of it. Several of us felt more ambivalent at that point. Basically, we, we tried again, ooh, about 2007, something like that. I, I, I Myself and um, Ruth Walter got together and discussed the possibility of revealing more about things and including our own identities as part of the uh, part of the group um but that felt fell apart as well again we tried to set up a, a actually a documentary with the bbc again it failed on it failed basically because we didn't have enough people prepared to talk uh, even by that time of course several people had died but there were still five or six people around who could have been contribute but only well basically can Ken and uh, Ruth and me were that's the only Ken, people. That's Ken Weller. That's Ken Weller, Ruth Walter and myself were the only ones who were prepared to be involved and they didn't feel that was big enough to do. So we didn't go ahead with that either. So it basically, it's been moving along. I mean, I'm 80 now. Um, if I don't do it now, I mean, when will I do it? You know, it's, it's a sort of, uh, it, it's... It's a long time. It's sixty years, and um, I, I don't, I do, I didn't, I didn't ever quite have the trepidation. I think that some people had. I mean, Mike Lesser in particular, who really freaked out about the whole business. And but you're the only one of the Spice for Peace who actually went inside, broke into the regional seat of government at Warren Row, who, who's still with us, and yes, and and it correct. was, and you went, you went in twice, and then you uh, exposed the. Uh, location of this 
civil defence bunker and helped to organise a mass protest around it. And you published 3,000 copies of a, of a pamphlet. I mean, when you look back on that, I mean, and thinking how it felt when you were doing it, when you were only 20 years old, I think, do you, do you recall a sense of excitement or a sense of real fear? Well, it's an interesting question. I, th- I think a bit of both. I mean, I, I think I think I, I obviously wasn't as frightened about the whole thing as as, as Mike got. Um, he, he he jumped out of the out of the boat, as it were, <laughs> after the first uh, trip. But um, now, on the other hand, yes, there was a sense of adventure. I would say, uh, as well as a sense of of, of of trepidation. It was a bit of both, and um, that was true of the uh, of many other because we didn't only examine those bunker that particular bunker i mean we we went on after that all right the, the the most important thing we did was to publish the rsg6 pamphlet on the basis of that particular uh, exercise but we actually did a lot of other bunker busting exercises as it were um across the country places in the west country places in essex and so on and so forth for, for, for over a long well over i guess the next year and a bit I wondered if you could say a little bit about, I mean, because it's such a dramatic thing to do. I mean, probably even more so at the time, but but now this idea of breaking into a top secret underground government bunker, what do you think led you personally to the decision that you would be part of taking that kind of direct action? Was there a particular moment you recall when you realized you were going to do it? Um, I'm not sure. I probably uh, we, we it goes back the, the roots of this are best examined by looking at a pamphlet called beyond counting asses which uh title is uh, expressive of the concern we had numbers of us who had been in the radical anti-nuclear movement for some time the anti-war movement were, were quite frustrated with where things were going or or not going basically we we, we were just we're either long marches like the Aldermaston back back and forth, back and forth. And, and and then we were doing the same thing, but only we're sitting down and getting arrested, you know, being fined 50 quid for whatever. And it was not going anywhere. I mean, it was clear that we needed to do other things more directly related to the concerns we had about the nuclear state. The regional seat of government system was a known thing. It wasn't. It wasn't completely hidden. It was known, but but it was very little discussed in in the press or, or anywhere else. Most people hadn't a clue about it. But we felt that there was information to be gathered from 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 these bunkers, which would tell people much about the way in which the. Uh, nuclear state was operating and what its expectations were and so on and so forth. I mean, the, the success of the whole exercise, for, for, from my point of view, I think it's very much to do with Phalex 62, which was a war game, a modelling exercise. And we were very fortunate that the exercise had been held in the, I think it was October 62, yes. And the paperwork for this was still sitting around on all the desks in, in in the bunker and i mean there was a lot basically when you do a war game and modeling like this you you, you present a great bunch of papers to an individual ex- telling you you know what's happening everywhere right the way through the exercise and this stuff was all over the all over the bunker and i mean it, it was possible even on the first trip we made in which was more of a reconnoiter than a than a real 
investigation. And even then, we were able to pick up enough there to get a feel for what this bunker was being used for, which was essentially it was a, a place where the government conceived the governance of Britain at a time of nuclear war. And most people probably didn't realize that the government had a notion about how it would govern during a nuclear war. And it was, you know, it was that important. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know exactly what point, but we had some, had some meetings around, oh, I think the last one was, was, was probably early February of that year. The, 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 there was a way ahead conference. We'd had several of them over the, over the period. I mean, the way ahead was always being investigated, plotted out. The way ahead conference was a place where people were discussing ideas about how to change things and move ahead in new ways. And 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 that 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 that's where a, a real conversation began, and that's where we um, we produced a pamphlet for that. And well, most of the people on that pamphlet, because we put all our names on it. I mean, perhaps crazily, but we did. Most of those people were spies for peace. But you didn't call yourself the spies for peace at the time. So who, when you say we, no, we who were you? I mean, what what, what, well, what brought you together? What brought us together was the fact that most of us had been, well, we, probably most of us been in C and Eve, and although that's not really very germane, but we, we were all of us around the Committee of One Hundred. I think that's the key thing. Also, several of us were in other organisations, particularly Solidarity, a libertarian socialist organisation. You mentioned it earlier. The, the production of a pamphlet is actually typical of what solidarity did with with the world, as it were, and 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 basically the the recourse to producing a pamphlet called Beyond Counting Arsenal, that sort of pushing that into the debate about how we should unlock secrets about the the, the, the secret state, as it were. Poor man's Peter Hennessy, I guess. <laughs> I wonder if we could invite Sam in to the conversation and just talk about how you became interested in exploring this history and what brought you to the people involved. Okay, I'll try and keep this short. Hello, everyone. <laughs> so um, I was doing an MA um, at the University of Sussex and I was looking, and, and it was in life history research, and I was looking at people to interview and I, I was looking at women in protest and I came across the Committee of 100, I think it was in Jill Liddington's book about protest, like, anyway, I came across this group, I thought these people need to be interviewed, I couldn't come across, I couldn't find any interviews with people, so I decided to focus on some women and I interviewed a group of women who've been involved in the Committee of 100. And then for my doctoral thesis, I decided this was great and I needed to go further. And I concentrated on the Committee of 100 as a whole. So she had to turn to men because we were very relatively <laughs> women. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's very true. Um, but I had a wonderful gatekeeper actually on the way in who, when I very first interviewed her, had, had no contacts with anybody at all from the Committee of 100. But then after I'd interviewed her, her name's Jay Jin was Nightingale. She produced a book <laughs> where she had contacts. So they, I was very quickly learned what what a closed group this was. So yeah, so I, it was the Committee of One Hundred that I was looking at, and the you know the structure and method of their organisation. But of course, the Spies for Peace would come up a lot 
I never expected for the Spies for Peace to talk to me about their endeavours because that felt like an extremely closed book. But it is what happened. And, and you spoke to several of the Spies for Peace, including Nick. Yeah, so Nick was one of I four. Was the last of the ones you... I mean, you, you first first person to reveal himself was Mike, I believe, wasn't it? Mike Lesser. Yes. So, yeah. So, well, Mike, my... you've interviewed them together, didn't you? Yeah, which stands against everything you're supposed to do in oral history. <laughs> supposed to oh, sorry about that. Was that a revelation? I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> what, we, what we teach in oral history is one person at a time because people talk over each other. They finish each other's sentences. You know, people uh, present themselves differently to different people. Sure. So when I turned, I knew I was interviewing Mike. I'm, I can't believe I'm actually saying these names out loud now, but I know they're out there. So... Um, <laughs> I, I, I arranged to meet Mike at a station in London and then I was going to go on to meet Ken later on in the day and I turned up at the station and Mike's standing there and says, come on then, jump in the car and I'm, oh no, okay, what's happening here? And he, he said, we're going to Ken's house and drove me around there and I, I, I was just thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible but it turned out to be quite opposite. <laughs> it turned out to be an amazing uh, amazing interview. Uh, yes, they did talk over each other and finish each other's sentences, but what they told me started the ball rolling for all of this. And, and, yeah. and all the people you spoke to at that time declined to be named. So it was really quite a secretive little, almost a cell. Yes. Yeah, so in my article, I I referred to the four people I was into. I interviewed. A, C and D. <laughs> a, B, C and D. Because I did want to protect their identities because there was still some possibility that people could be arrested for for taking part in this. And also, well, Ken said to me, oh, I'm not bothered about all of that, but I just don't want any publicity or people knocking on my door or... He didn't want the fascia around it. No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so when I interviewed my, um, Mike and Ken, they, they, they told me of their involvement. They'd planned, they'd planned to tell me together. They decided they were going to tell me this at the same time and they decided it had to come out in, in a way that was not for profit. Otherwise they put in a learned thesis and that was drawing on something that happened before, which was Michael Randall and Pat Pottle had published a book called The Blake Escape. Mm. How they, they, they sprung somebody, a spy, George Blake from prison 20 years before they wrote the book. And then they were prosecuted for profiting from criminal activity. In fact, not the jury let them off. The jury. <laughs> the jury let them, them off. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. And then I, I drafted this and then I thought, well, Ruth obviously was had been married to Nicholas Walter, who had already been outed as a spy for peace. So I, I thought, I'll get her opinion on it. So I'd sent it to Ruth to read. And she got back to me saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you've got to come and talk to me. And she turned out to be C. So then her input. And then, and then I'm not sure, how did I, how did I get in contact with you, Nick? You, you wrote, to, I think you, you did a, a letter to quite a number of people the same, basically an invitation to get involved. And it was, it was that that prompted me to get involved. I think possibly also Mike may have mentioned that he was in touch with you about this and that sort of propelled it along, uh, the fact that he and Ken. I mean, Ken was a really key figure and right from the start. And the fact that Ken was prepared to to chat about it and have his have his identity known too, he wasn't he wasn't concerned about that. So that's when I said, well, at least I should give you 
we're getting fewer numbers as the, the years pass, I was beginning to feel. And, um, you know, I think by that time, Nick was already gone. And um, Doug Brewood, of course, went much earlier. But and Nick, you're, you're talking about, you know, what the Spice for Peace did. Hmm. Um, how did you find out that there was a, a government secret bunker underground at Warren Row in Berkshire? Was it, was it a leak or what? Well, <laughs> I don't know all the details around this because Ken was the person who, who had the contact with the people in Reading and just how that would... I mean, there, there was a layer of it. There's, there's, a, there's an engineer of some sort, probably a post office engineer, somebody who puts in telecom systems in, 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 into buildings, uh, who, who seems to be the ultimate person who, 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 who came up with... Here is a place, you know, this is a, a worth looking at. They then spoke, I think, to somebody who was, as it were, a political person in Reading who, who Ken knew. And the linkage was made in that way. When we went out, in fact, on the first trip out, which, as I said earlier, was more of a reconnoitre than anything else. And this is, this is February 1963? Yes. With snow on the ground? With snow on the ground, yes. But it was for both trips because the, the two trips were only about a week apart and the snow was still there. It was a very, very cold winter. And, and it was the coldest winter of the century. But basically, when we went out and did that reconnoitering, we actually went to a pub first to meet someone. Um, this was in the um, probably a bit after lunch, about three o'clock or something like that. And we met someone out there. Um, Ken talked to them. And it was from the basis of that discussion that we then had an idea of where to go in, in terms of looking around because we didn't have an exact location. Nobody was had given us an exact location and they still didn't. They said it's in the region of, you know, you need to look around here. And I don't know how detailed it was, but I th think we we had some idea that it was near Warren Row and, and that, that was about it. And we spent a good hour or two maybe even longer, three hours, searching the landscape for it. And then you managed to break in? Yes. Well, uh, some of the, the stories tell different tales at different times, and, and this is perhaps a mixture of, of, of reasons. But, I mean, for example, I, I know that Mike says in one of his, Mike Lesser, that is, in one of his uh, videos that he, that he did, he, two or three of them, I think, um, one of them, he says that that I, that I op you know I, I opened a lock to get in. That that isn't doesn't accord with my particular remembrance. I don't think we had to break a lock to get in. And I think Nick Nick Walter, uh, his account confirms mine, which is actually the door was loose. It was open. I mean, it wasn't wide open. I mean, but it wasn't locked. You basically could open the door at the top. And. So we didn't actually break in at that point. We we were able to walk in, and we even the indoor. It, there's a door inside which laid down the steps to the to the to the bunker proper, and that too was open. So we didn't actually break in at all at that on that occasion. The second occasion when we came up with the, to do the proper investigation to to collect as much evidence as we could about the the purpose of the place. That that time it was locked. And we had to open it. But on that first occasion you went there, what did you find when you got through the door and went down the stairs? It must have been, I, mean, I imagine it was dark, cold. Um, no, there were lights. And, there, and this was one of the things that was amazing was that the, 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 it was lit. 
I mean, and, and when we investigated further on the second occasion, I mean, we found, you know, there was heating, there was water systems, all, everything was running. It, it, it was clearly a potentially operable environment. You didn't need anything doing to it, as it were. And it was being looked after. I mean, this was the point. We, when we got there the first time and we went through the door, we found a, a note, a, a, what you call it, you know, where, where people record uh, the times of their arrival and departure and so on. And we saw that there was someone due, and we knew we only had about half an hour or something like that, I think it was, um, before they would be turning up. So we, we then became went into rush mode to, to have a quick look round and get out as quickly as possible because the car was, I don't know, I think it was a couple of hundred yards at least away from there, but it, it would be seen if, if, if anyone was driving up, they would spot the car and they'd think, what's a car doing there? Because it was on a bit of rough, rough land, you know, in the middle of snow. I mean, so basically, we we, we reckoned we we didn't have a lot of time to spare. We 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 just got on with it. Um, and mainly, what we did, what mainly what we found was we saw maps and things on walls. Um, we saw paperwork, particularly on Phallic sixty two, but not only. There was also paperwork which primarily related to the, the RSG system across the country. So there was details about other RSGs, RSG4 in particular. We got a lot of information about that too. And we included some of that in the eventual pamphlet. So when you left after that initial uh, invasion, um, <laughs> you you must have decided, you must have left knowing that you were going to come back. Well, we, we didn't know for sure that we would come back. I mean, we didn't make that decision actually until afterwards. I mean, we, 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 what we knew was we couldn't stay any longer because there was no way that was safe. We had to leave at that point. We then, and we, we had a very limited feel for what we'd got in terms of paperwork and what it was telling us. So we took that back to London and, and basically over the course of the next few days, we examined that and, and and got a feel for exactly what this place was and and and, and I feel that there was much more that could be got out of it than than we'd got from that first trip, and that's when we planned a second trip, which is when Mike dropped out and Nick Walter joined the team, and so and that was literally I think it was about a week later, maybe ten days, but precisely I don't know. I think Nick's count gives gives much of the detail of the timing of these things better than I could do. And and could you sort of walk us through how did you equip yourself for that? And and was it about you know how much information you could record? What sort of equipment you brought, and how well, you would avoid detention? Yeah, yeah, we, we brought, brought lots of equipment. I mean, we brought a small amount of equipment to open doors. Uh, you know, very, very, various bits and pieces of metal and uh, so on. But that, 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 that's that's a minor part of it. The main equipment we bought was things like cameras, tracing paper. Remember taking tracing paper? That was really useful because there was big things on the walls which you couldn't remove without it being obvious that you'd been there. We were trying not to be visible. We were trying to leave the site as though we'd never been there. We we did actually take one or two things that probably there was no other copy in the place because they were too long to, to, to write out. Mostly, though, there were duplicates of things and we could take those. But we also photographed some documents. We photographed some wall things. We traced some. So we, we had kit for tracing. We had kit for, for opening doors. We had kit for photographing. What else did we have? 
I think those are primarily things. It's a different world now. Uh, you know, today one would have taken a good quality uh, camera, digital, and, and the whole lot would have been taken photographs, everything. We wouldn't have had to take a single piece of paper away. We could have just photographed the lot. But you only took one roll of film. No, I think we tried to took more than one roll of film. Okay. I, I, I thought I thought. <laughs> but I thought... actually, yeah, I mean, that wasn't the critical thing. I mean, the photographs we took outside were the only ones we used, well, the only ones we used were the outside ones because we didn't want it to be obvious that we were inside. So we only showed one picture, which was the outside. But we took those photos on the first trip because that was in daylight. The second trip, although we arrived in daylight initially, there were there was evidence there was people there. I didn't think there was a car there um, when we arrived. So we didn't go in, obviously. <laughs> we, we went to the pub again and, <laughs> <laughs> and basically waited around until it was dark on the basis that they weren't going to be there all night. And then we went back and sure enough, the car had gone and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. But if you'd have been caught red-handed, so to speak, I mean, you had a real fear that you would have had a long jail sentence. Yes, I think we 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 realised that if we got caught, there was a serious risk that they would um, do it under the Official Secrets Act rather than any of the burglary acts or anything. And in theory, at least, yes, you could get a very long sentence indeed because there would have been multiple offences uh, that they could have charged you with. But, but yes. you still, but you still went ahead and decided to issue the pamphlet "Danger Official Secret," and blew the gaff on the whole regional seat of government structure and the location of Warren Row. Indeed, but we did take a lot of precautions. For example, you asked about equipment. We all wore gloves. It's really boring wearing gloves the whole time. I can tell you, but basically, we we we, we all wore gloves. In theory, at least, there were no fingerprints left in the in the in the in the, in the place. Today. Modern forensics could probably detect in our presence, but I suspect that in those days, but they didn't really suspect it. This is the point. We made so little imprint that no one seems to have ever thought that we'd actually entered it. And the only discussion I've seen in the minutes that have become available over the you know the many years that have passed, there was. There are minutes that expose some of the inner discussions that went on shortly after the after the break-in. And there's clearly a belief that some senior civil servant or medium-level civil servant has been the person who's given away this, this information, rather than that there was a break-in by a group. And there's nothing in the record that shows that they knew that. On the other hand, I have to say that I think there may be two levels of analysis going on here. There's the senior civil servants who are talking around at the Home Office and, and the Foreign Office and various others, and which you can see, you can go and it's on the record. But there's also special branch, and possibly MI5, but 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 but, but basically special branch, certainly with, with your people I encountered. And they they were following up primarily the list of people who had put their signatures on the Beyond Counting Arses pamphlet, they rightly, I think, felt there was a very strong likelihood that people who actually called for these things to happen might then have done it. And so they raided all the various houses. I mean, I, I left the country 
I didn't even actually go to the to RSG6 on the, the Friday of the Order Master March, unlike some of the spies who did. I didn't. I, I did go out to Wildermaston on that morning, looked around, saw so many special branch people around that I knew and decided that um, I didn't really want to stay around. It looked as though they were taking it rather seriously. And uh, so I left the country that either that night or the night after. How? Uh, but on a boat. Uh, on a, you know, I just booked a ferry. I did it to our Southampton, actually, which was, you know, not not the sort of regular route. It was a route for truckers, really. And um, they didn't even check anything. They didn't even see, look at my passport. And how long did you stay away? I think I was away about three to four weeks. Something like that. And when you came back, what did you find? Well, one of the things I found was was that the police were actually watching my mother's house. Um, they they thought that I lived there. They weren't. That wasn't correct. I wasn't actually living at home at that time. I was living in a flat with another person actually, who was one of the spies. But they, there you go. Eventually, they got around to searching that. They searched my mother's house after I'd gone to Paris. They 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 searched my mother's house, and um, they then set a person up in a house opposite to watch for my when I returned. There was some confusion at the time. They they first thought that um, I was my stepfather. My stepfather was actually ill in hospital with serious lung problem. But uh, so they got a bit confused about who they were chasing where. But basically, they eventually they realised that I wasn't there and that, uh, that that I might come back, and therefore they needed to keep an eye on the house. And indeed, within twenty four hours of me arriving back from Paris, they they phoned me and uh, asked me to be come come and be interviewed. At Scotland Yard. At Scotland Yard, indeed, yes, yes. A friendly interview? Um, no, I don't think. You... <laughs> no, it wasn't a friendly interview. I mean, it was quite aggressive, but um, I, I always felt that they were pretty sure that 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 that, that I and several others who they thought, as I say, who, beyond counting asses, people had done it. I I, I feel they. They had a fairly strong view about that. On the other hand, they didn't really have the evidence. And we we had succeeded in not actually leaving any traces. I mean, we destroyed everything. We destroyed the notes we made in the bunker. We destroyed the typewriter. We, or we, we, lost, we lost the typewriter in a river. We, you know, we, we literally threw away all of the the paraphernalia that we had used in order to produce the pamphlet, for example, disappeared before the pamphlet was distributed. We, we were out almost simultaneously throwing the stuff away and also putting the pamphlet into the post on, what was it, the Wednesday or so before before the Aldermast and Good Friday. So the, the, the pamphlet was issued over the Easter weekend or in advance of the Easter weekend before the Aldermaster. In advance, yes. A yeah. couple of days. And what was the response of the the state, the media, to its its um, distribution? Well, the, the state um, response was quite quick in the sense that, as I said earlier, they went and searched the houses of all the people on the, the, the BCA list and although I wasn't around to see this because I decided discretion was the better part, etc. They also 
I think, started investigating wider than that group of BCA. But I, I, I don't know much of the detail of how wide this police net was. Um, but it they, they got confused. A lot of people started producing additional copies of it, you know, so, so, so sort of um, just large numbers of, 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 a, of, of a new edition. And, and there were lots of new editions. And so there were all sorts of people producing the stuff. And I think that they got some confusion in terms of the police response because they were chasing them as well because it was regarded as an offence. For example, at Aldermaston on the Friday, they were actually taking copies off people, saying this is illegal, taking it away, and so on. So it... They'd issued a D-notice. They, they had issued, they issued a D-notice. That was... They'd issued a D-notice a couple of weeks before, hadn't they? No, a D-notice is a is a, a, a request stroke instruction from MI5 to the press, don't report this. That's right. But, but they did. The interesting thing is I think that D-notice was actually issued before the pamphlet hit the streets. Which suggests that they must have been aware of something uh, happening or some activity well, or some plans. Yes, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, it's worth checking out, actually. I, I, you, your notes from some of the discussions with with Ken and uh, and Mike might be helpful there, um, or, or or maybe just check on it in, 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 among Ruth's stuff as well, because she has a lot of the information that Nick had. I don't know. I just have a feeling in my head that that maybe maybe it was actually. I mean, clearly it applied at the time. That it was relevant, but it, it might have applied earlier, which, which, as you say, would have implications. But Sam, this is an incredible story, isn't it? This feels like the Ipcress file. <laughs> this is an incredible story. I mean, uh, from my understanding, um, the D notice came out because it was sent out to three thousand people at first, wasn't it? It was, yes. Including newspapers and um, politicians, all sorts of people who would be angry churches. about it, as well as people who were, you know. We're on our side, as it were. Yeah. yeah. And then the D notice meant that people couldn't um, copy it. So that was why people were being told that they weren't allowed to even copy it. So didn't somebody get arrested for singing it? <laughs> but you see, the other side of that is within a few days, the Daily Telegraph printed practically the whole of it on the basis of a Prague broadcast of much of the contents. The, the other place that that could have applied, but I don't think it did, was was Nouvelle Observateur, which, when we got to Paris, had published the entire pamphlet um, in in um, replica, you know, in basically photographs of all the pages were completed with all sorts of rather nice commentary on it. And uh, uh, yeah. but, but what about? Sorry, I was chip in a little bit and say the, the, the bit where you before you disappeared off and um, after the raids that bit in between I find really interesting as well because it's all of you getting together producing this document but all having really very different jobs and each of you had these different jobs but didn't really know what each other were doing or how each other were doing it because in case so in case someone got caught they couldn't say what anyone else was doing that I think is a really fascinating part. To some extent, yeah, that's that's true. Only after the event, to some extent, do we know what each of us did at the, during that period. I mean, I know perfectly well what I was doing during that week. I was doing my photographs. I was I was developing the, the negatives and printing the the, the images. Uh, was one thing I did. The other thing I did was to take the tracings I'd done from some of the walls, uh, these these wall uh, charts 
which it's it's the you know it's like usual corporate sort of thing. It's showing every room and as it were who's there, except that it was just a letter or a number or something on that didn't say who was in the rooms. It just gave an identity to each room. So we had these, and I I was tracing these out. I was also drafting some maps, which are also incorporated in the in things. So I, I was doing things which I had particular skills to do and the equipment to do them. Rather like one of my roles was as a chauffeur to this party because I was the only person with a car. I mean, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. Well, it could have happened in some other way, but basically um, we we used my car for all of this every time. Nearly you dispose of the car afterwards? No, no. Good. No, no. <laughs> I wouldn't have dispose of a car. <laughs> but but the, the, I mean, the, the pamphlet, uh, Danger Official Secret, it was done by Gestetner, which means it was hand duplicated. And it's quite a long pamphlet. So that was thousands of pieces of paper being thread through a, a manual yeah, duplicator. That, that's the final thing. I mean, before that, there's a lot to do that, that Sam's talking about, which was people actually doing research work in effect they were going into the local reference library and matching information among civil service lists and things against information that were in the FALAC 62 documentation or in the RSG6 documentation or indeed the RSG4 documentation so all of that could be linked up to other publicly available sources and people like Ken and and Nick in particular I think we're doing work on that. I mean, Ken did the first draft of the of, of, of what we were going to produce. Ken Weller. Ken Weller, yes. There's one person whose name I can't give you who was in the group because he is still alive and I'm not in contact with him and I don't know whether he wishes his name to be available. So as far as I'm concerned, but he, he was probably quite involved in this work of actually preparing it. And Nick himself was involved in, in, in doing a lot of the work to actually prepare the pamphlet. When it came to actually doing it, Solidarity was famous for doing hundreds of pamphlets and, and, and so on. Much of that skill was used and by people who had been do, used to, to using it in, in, in Solidarity context. But in this case, we actually used a duplicator that was located in the ILP offices in uh, King's Cross rather than the, 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 the one that was at um, the Solidarity base, as it were. And we ran off the, the, the yes, the, the, what is it, 3,000 times? Is it six pages long, seven pages long? Six or eight, something like that. Well, then we, basically all the paper had to be channeled back. I think we, we did it in different flats even. We did sections of it um, and then brought them together. That probably took about, I don't know, a day and a half to do the, the, the collation of it all. But then it all had to be... What we did, we we actually, most of the ones that were going out as as individual copies or a couple of copies, we, we used a labelling system with a, a wrapper around. So we rolled it up and put, put, put a sticky wrap around it and then a label put on it. And most of them went out that way. Some of them went out in larger numbers, bound differently. But, but basically... Yeah, the business of actually wrapping them up for the post was far more tedious than the business of, of just collating them. Collating is not that difficult a skill. It's just boring. Um. <laughs> Ruth, Ruth was saying that she said it was endless in a hot room, you know. Getting yes. Gloves on still. With gloves, gloves on. Gloves on as at RSG6. Gloves on for the duplication. <laughs> gloves on for the collation. All the time, gloves on. 
and collecting money as well. Ruth had to go out to collect money. I presume Ruth that was did that. I understood from later, but I didn't know it at the time. But she was actually trying to get together a nest egg. You're right to finance the whole operation. I mean, obviously, in the interim, the money was available from all of us in a sense, but we didn't particularly want to afford it, and so we went to donors from. Oh, I think mainly from people around the Committee of 100 anyway. There were several celebrities and people with significant incomes to be tapped. And Ruth knew most of them and and and, and she went and uh, talked to some of them. And we, we didn't, it wasn't vast amounts of money. It was about 100 quid or something, I think. Which I guess would be 10 times bigger than that now. Did you put it in the post or did you? We did, it? yes. I mean, we, we, we actually went round... And did it in two two different sort of modes. We we went round and 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 literally put you know three or four copies into a post box here and there and did that all over the place. And we also put some large chunks at the very beginning into places like Mount Pleasant, the main sorting office in London. And basically, the idea was that the pattern we were using would make it very unlikely that none of it would get through. It, it would be very difficult to stop. But the time the first one was opened by somebody who might be interested in stopping it, it would already have effectively gone everywhere. And that was obviously totally successful as far as we know that they didn't manage to stop any of it. Nick, how, I mean, there must have been a lot of chatter on on the left about who was responsible for for the pamphlet, who the spies for peace were. And lots of people must have asked you, were you one? Do you know who they were? How did you <laughs> respond and did, did your friends know? Well, of course, I was actually in Paris for three weeks, which meant that some of this chatter I didn't have to suffer. I don't know, we we, we, we didn't we didn't acknowledge or admit it, even to even to people who, I mean, there were some people uh, who I knew, who, who knew that I was a spy and they weren't in, in the political world, uh, but very few. Very few people. Um, we we did actually keep mum. Um, we didn't we didn't uh, talk. So although lots of people speculated, I mean this was one of the things. I think is somewhere somebody said that uh, if, if they had a few bob for for every time somebody claimed to be a spy for peace, they'd have been rich. I mean, literally, I don't think. I suspect I don't. Sam, did you know that Doug Brewood was one of them? I did. Uh, oh, you did. Right. Okay. I, I, Doug Brewood Junior, I may say, not Doug Brewood Senior. Yeah. Um. I did, uh, over time. You, you didn't. You didn't get to interview him because he long died. But uh, you know, he was he was gone. But uh, yeah. No, I just wondered uh, because he he doesn't appear anywhere in any of the records. But uh, you know, he, he he was he was a guy I went to Paris with. <laughs> the two of us went there. But, but Sam, were you struck when you were doing your research about how almost hermetically sealed the spies for peace were? Yeah, I absolutely was. Although there was the, always this notion that, as as Nick's referring to, is that everybody was a little bit involved. Uh, where it, and I think that's because so many people copied it and shared it that they felt like they were part of it. But um, it was Nic Nicholas Walters' article. Um, that was printed in in the Raven and the Guardian, where he specifies that there were eight. So he he brings it down to an eight pe eight people, which if yeah. you, my then, article, then, then he rejects Mike Lesser as one of the eight because he only stayed for too short a time. But um, yeah. yeah, 
that's what that's what my my article kind of focuses on because at the beginning it was I was trying to work out who the, who these people were finding the boundaries. When I went to speak to Ruth, she excluded Mike because yeah. she she was saying that actually you hadn't decided you were called the spies for peace until after the raids had completed and you were actually putting this together and it was a play on kind of stylist propaganda of like farmers for peace or um scientists for peace wasn't it so that it, in the, the biggest circle i think it was 10 if you include mike and one other but nick brings yeah. it down to eight yeah and i mean basically if you take mike out you have to put in ian hutchison and again he's not a name that appears uh, he was not someone who was prepared to be interviewed by you or anybody else. And he, he, he's now now left us. And I think Mary, Mary Kerwood, as she was, actually, when she was in the Committee of 100, she was Mary Kerwood, who also has now left us. She wasn't prepared to talk to you either. Was there a sort of enduring sense of fellowship or, you know, that you had been united in this this venture? Did you stay in touch over the years and stay close? Oh, yes. Well, to start off, there was a tale to the spy's work. It wasn't just the one-off of, of, as I said earlier, we actually went on going, looking at various places, ranging in size from a huge complex down at Corsham in, in the West Country near Bath. And th- th- that has, you know, elements of um, naval uh, intelligence, uh, RAF, uh, and so on. Ministry of Public Building and Works. It's it's a huge complex. It's a it's a national government complex rather than a local thing like the RSGs. So we did look at that, but we never managed to get enough. We we did get inside it, but not in such a way that um, we felt able to stay there because it was being occupied at the time and we would have been instantly arrested if we carried on with what we were doing. So we, 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 although we got inside it, we didn't, didn't actually learn very much about its current usage, only that it was being still used. But we went to other places. I mean, uh, another important one was, uh, for what it taught us, was, was Keldon Hatch over in Essex, where there's a combination of a, a sort of sub-regional RSG and uh, what is a Royal Observer Corps place they're, they're both combined in a single single unit obviously built for purpose interesting one so we, we carried on doing these things so in that sense we were together for a while doing these things different groups of us not always the same people although i tend to be nearly always there because people always wanted my car there so <laughs> it was uh it was my allotted task to take people to these places but um after the uh, well, that that ended really in '64. I think we we had we had we had one last go at trying to find a different way into Corsham, which was to try and get through on the railway system because there you, there is actually a connection. You can you, if you if you get to the tunnel that goes into the in, in, into the mountain, in effect, just before Bath, you, the, the the railway tunnel is the main line train goes through. But there's also on on the side there's a a subsidiary line which 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 has another gate in front of it and um that subsidiary line actually leads to a way into the to caution complex there are sidings and things inside the hill so we tried to get through there we we tried other methods we'd gone down air shafts and god knows what but when we did that that was the last thing we did as a group but you see several of us were in the group of solidarity and we went on being in the group of solidarity. I mean, I remained in the group 
in a, in a conspicuously you know significant way up until the time I left London to come to Sheffield to go to university, which was Miss um, Tanya was born in sixty eight seventy three I guess it was she was five when we got here yeah so you know all that time we remained a group in the sense that we knew each other because we'd be both in solidarity and in inspired speech but also some people like uh, Nick and Ruth for example weren't weren't in solidarity. Nick was very much more of an anarchist than a socialist, as it were. But we still, I mean, we were good friends. I mean, by that time, you know, we were just very good friends. So we did go on seeing each other. I remember having a picnic with Ruth, which I've got photographs of with the babies, or with one of them, I think. Yeah, I think it's the oldest one. Oh, no, it's Natasha, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, so Natasha is, is, the, is, is a baby there. So, yeah, I mean, we, we went on seeing each other for, for years afterwards. Sam, as a historian, how would you judge the impact of the Spice for Peace? Mm. Well, I think for the first time, the public considered the fact that if, if, the, if a bomb were to go off, then everybody was screwed, basically. I mean, like the fact that they put these regional seats of governments around the country and not in London... They knew that London would be destroyed and they haven't really thought about that. I think that kind of post-war mentality we've got through the war, we're being protected by a government was kind of a, a bit obliterated by that. And it was in a time of there was there was the Profumo affair going on. There was a, there was a sense of mistrust in, in leadership that was going on anyway. And I think this really compounded that. I think the war modelling um, that they did, the war gaming, and the results of that were horrendous. The, the number of hospitals that were destroyed almost immediately, tens of thousands of people roaming the countryside, effectively homeless, but also irradiated. I mean, basically, they had to acknowledge in these war games what, you know, nuclear war isn't something you can survive. Survival isn't actually on the cards if if if, if you have a nuclear war. And... I think it, it got that point over quite quite strongly. Was was this this was not something which uh, and and civil defence, for example, which had been seen as you know a significant contribution to mitigating the possibilities of the, and the dangers of nuclear war. After this, very soon, civil defence ceased to be a matter of significance in this country. People simply recognised that actually there is no civil defence against a nuclear exchange. Um, not one that's worth having. So it was an example of direct action which actually did change things? I think it did. I think it did change. I think it changed quite a lot of the way in which people felt about the risks of nuclear war and about the way the government... I mean, the fact that the government would create these bunkers, which were they were probably conceived as being much more effective than in fact they were. I mean, to be honest, I mean, if any of these bunkers had been hit by a direct strike, they would have been completely eliminated. Megaton weapons were then in existence, and megaton weapons would have simply taken them out completely um, and for, for acres, of miles around. So basically, they, they, they didn't actually provide the sort of uh, security for government uh, and governance that perhaps people thought they might. I mean, in fact, they didn't. Just as a, a footnote to the whole episode, I've been trying to find out what happened to 
RSG6 at Warren Row. It was part of a, a chalk mine and it was used during the Second World War for making uh, an, an underground factory for making parts of aircraft and ammunition. But it, um, after uh, Warren Row, it, it became derelict and then it was used by a document storage centre. It is now a bonded wine warehouse. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I actually spoke to one of the people who who runs it, who was aware that there was a protest and it had been a government bunker. And she said that, that the gatehouse, which is what you photographed, still stands. They wanted to demolish it, but a builder came along and said that roof is designed to be bombproof. It's indestructible. So the gatehouse is still there. But underground, they've recently found another floor they didn't know about, which has three what they describe as cells with prison style doors one seems to be a group cell and two seem to be isolation cells so there's probably more to find out about that site but it is a remarkable episode and i'm just so pleased uh, that sam and nick you've been able to share uh, you know your insights and nick your personal memories i think it's quite Interesting. Yes, as a personal memory, I remember Mike uh, saying how it had cast a shadow on his whole life um, because he got so frightened about the whole business. Um, it did quite the opposite to me because the year after the demonstration in 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 sixty four, there was a picnic held at RSG six, and. In order to get people out to the picnic, we had a number of cars collect actually at um, Mary Tinker's flat um, in London and, and we ferried people out. And on that occasion, um, it's very emotional for me. It's, it's, it's the place I met Penny, Penny Clegg, she was then. She was my wife. I had my children with her and uh, she was the last of the spies, actually, because she came to the last do at Caution when we failed to get in yet again. But um, Penny um, basically died five years ago. We'd had 54 years together. And uh, if we hadn't done the RSG6 thing, if we hadn't been the spies for peace, I would never have met her. So to me, it was what formed, formed the, the structure of my life. So in a way, quite the opposite to Mike. It was it was the basis for for, for, for the whole future I would have uh, together with her, and and my life would have been totally different if we hadn't had if we hadn't done it. So in a sense, I made my own future by by the Spies for Peace exercise. Huge thanks to Nick Ralph and Sam Carroll for taking part in this conversation, and to Andrew Whitehead for making it happen. You can find out more about Nick and Sam on the episode page for this podcast, including a link to Sam's 2010 History Workshop Journal article, Danger, Official Secrets, Discretion and Disclosure in the Committee of 100, which is currently open access. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.